Let me uh, introduce and bring up uh, Paul Fleming. Uh, Paul's going to be sharing the word with us this morning. Uh, If you've been around at least the last few weeks, we've been doing a series called I. And really at the heart of this series called I was that uh, really just our desires. We didn't want to make our lives. We certainly didn't want to make this community about I, meaning just a self-centered, self-centric, self-focused uh, person, individual, and community. And so, uh, Paul, I'm excited that you're here to share. He's going to share with us a message called I Will. But uh, before I do that, let me uh, pray for Paul. God, thank you so much. Uh, you've been doing such a phenomenal work in our lives and in the life of this community uh, over three years. And so, God, we commit to you, certainly as we launch out into our fourth year um, as a community. God, just bless open up the floodgates of just blessing, that uh, we would love you, we would follow you, we would be obedient to you, and that we would love uh, people, we would love the community and the culture that uh, you have planted us in. Uh, So God, this morning in this place, I just pray you would uh, really open wide our hearts uh, to hear what you have to say to us uh, this day. God, I firmly believe that every single person that is here is here for a reason, and that you have uh, something, God, that you would share uh, with each of us. And so, God, this morning we commit to you just our friend, uh, your servant, uh, our brother Paul, God, that you would bless him and uh, the things that you've placed upon his heart, God, he would be able to just communicate that to each of us, and we would hear not only what Paul has to say, but most importantly, God, what you have to say uh, to us uh, through him. So, God, we are excited uh, to be here and excited uh, for what you have to share with us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Michael? Happy New Year. I think I should just go home after those kids, huh? Forget about it. <laughs> well, it's a new year, and as Michael said, it's a new decade. For some of you younger guys, uh, you know, a new year, you've been doing this a few times. Uh, for me, it's a new decade. I've been doing this a few times. And uh, so, but... You know, with uh, New Year's comes New Year's resolutions, right? And with New Year's resolutions comes those two little words, I will. And so, you know, what's it for you? I will lose some weight. I will stop smoking. Um, uh, I'm going to run, I will run a marathon this year. Or how about, I will actually get a job that I like. Uh, That's a big one. Uh, But for most of us, we substitute for those words, I will. Uh, I would love to, or I would like to. I would like to lose some weight. I'd like to run a marathon, but we really never, ever get there. And the reality is that only about 10% of New Year's resolutions ever come to fruition. That's not really very good odds. So why, why is it that only 10% of New Year's resolutions actually make it to full fruition? Well, part of it is those words, I will, are really powerful. I will means you're taking a stand. You're going to do something. It takes effort. It takes determination. It takes an inner desire to achieve that thing, right? And ultimately, it takes sacrifice to do that. And it's that sacrifice part that becomes a bit hard in terms of will I actually lay down whatever it is that's been holding me back to achieve that goal. So what I would like to do is show you one way to sacrifice to achieve those goals for your new year. There is only one way to get your precious water. I, your beloved King Julian, must simply make a small sacrifice to my good friends, the water gods, in the volcano. What does that do? What does that do? Excellent question. 
Mild sacrifice goes into volcano. Then the friendly gods eat up mild sacrifice. Mmm, very nice. Thank you for the sacrifice. Please have another sacrifice. No, I've had enough for the day. Listen, I'm going to be very insulted unless you have another. I don't want another sacrifice, okay? Look at you, you look skinny. No, I think I've had enough, not clear. The gods eat the sacrifice. They are grateful. They give me some of their water. And then I give it to you. What? Does it work? No. I mean, yes. Uh, well, Maurice? Yeah, it's 50-50. Yeah, we can do it! Excellent. Now, all I need is someone who would like to go in the volcano and get eaten by gods. Any hands? Hands, anybody? Okay, I need someone, perhaps, who has never found love. Who could look death straight in the eyeball? A real genuine hero. I'll do it. Melvin? My hero. Anybody want to sign up to do a sacrifice for me so that I can get my New Year's resolutions sorted out? I love that clip. When we think of sacrifice, we don't usually think of a physical death, right? We usually think about uh, giving something up. And so, uh, you know, we, have to, we would give up food, we'd give up cigarettes, giving her up, give up lying on the couch all day. And uh, Michael, a couple weeks ago, talked about I sacrifice. He also talked about, uh, last time we got together, about I die. And so if I sacrifice, I sacrifice for something. If I die, I die to something or for something. Otherwise, my sacrifice or my death is in vain, right? When we talk about um, dying in the Christian context, we talk about dying to the old man. And we talk about dying to self. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 25. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in other words, it's almost like clothes, right? You take off the old self, put it away, take the new self and put it on. You become a new man, right? But if I die, what do I really become? If I die to self, what, what becomes of me? Am I a walking corpse? Am I dead to the world and dead to sin? But I have no life, I have no fun. What is that about? If I die, who do I become? And I have to ask the question, well, who am I now? For most of us, and as Michael has talked about quite a bit in this series, I defines I. We shape our own image, or at least we try. Part of how we present ourselves is that we try to present ourselves as normal. We try to present ourselves as regular people. Mostly, we try to present ourselves like we have it all together. But part of the reason that we have a New Year's resolution to start with is that we know we don't have it all together, and we're trying to shape that definition of who we are just a little bit more, right? To make us more acceptable, mostly in the eyes of others around us. Often, we shape our image in a way that makes us different, that makes us a little bit cooler, a little hipper, 
a little bit different than the crowd. But it's ironic, though, that as we try to do that, we actually really want to be a part of the crowd, right? So we want to be normal. We want to be accepted. We want to be, but at the same time, we want to be different enough to be recognized as someone who stands out a little bit. But it, the reality is that we're all sinners. And on many levels, we don't have it together. And you can ask yourself the question, what is normal anyway? And uh, a few years ago, I saw a bumper sticker that's always stuck with me and said this, a normal person is just someone that you don't know very well. Pretty funny, huh? <laughs> um, so I asked myself this question, who am I before I die? And who am I after I die? Before I die, I'm a person who pretends to have it all together. Why do I do that? Simply for acceptance, simply for pride. I don't want to be known as a person who doesn't have it all together. Some people work hard to have their marriages appear to, appear to look rock solid. But if you look behind the veil, things would be a little bit different. Some people try to really hard to look like their great parents. But if you stuck your head in behind the door at their house, you might hear things that weren't the most, uh, the greatest parenting skills going on. They pretend to have a good marriage. They pretend to be good parents. But in that, what they really are is pretenders. A person that hasn't died yet, a person that must die, is a pretender. What I do does not define who I am. If you define yourself by what you do, you're a pretender. For example, any of you ever gone skydiving before? Ephraim. Wow. I've never heard Ephraim talk about skydiving, so I guess he doesn't define himself by skydiving. Probably he's never going to go again. <laughs> um, but you can imagine someone who's into it, and like whenever you're around them, what do they do? They talk about skydiving. They want you to know that I skydive. I am an adventurer. I am a risk taker. I'm a thrill seeker. They have pictures on their walls. If you go to the house, they'll show you the videos of their skydiving experiences. I've seen them from friends of mine. And uh, it's, it's all good. But defining yourself that way is kind of interesting because when you think about a skydiver, how much skydiving time did you get? Ifan, how long were you in the air when you did it? Yeah, five or six minutes, you know, at the most. If you're really good, you go up and come fly down. So you know, if you went a couple times a month, and every time you go, you jump a couple of times, you add it all up, do the math, every year you go, you're a skydiver for like three hours. <laughs> it's not very much. I used to do a lot of scuba diving. And I've logged about 70 or 80 hours in the water as a scuba diver. And uh, that sounds pretty impressive, except for the fact that I did that over a span of like 10 years. So that's like seven or eight hours of dive time uh, every year. So uh, for those of you who don't know, there's 8,760 hours in a year. That means I scuba dive like eight, and 8,752, I did something else. So it'd be kind of ridiculous to define myself as a scuba diver when I really only scuba dive a little bit. If I did define myself as a scuba diver, I would be putting on a mask. 
<laughs> Everybody recognizes that there's pretenders around them. Check out the lyrics from this song from the Foo Fighters. This isn't all the lyrics. Look at your face. You're the pretender. And then he asks a question. So who are you? Who are you? In this song, uh, Dave Grohl, who's the singer, states what we all know. You're, our, you're the pretender. He evokes images in this song of basically dead men walking, skeletons walking along, kind of evokes images of the dry bones from Isaiah. And in this song, the singer vows never to surrender to becoming a pretender. But in and of ourselves, we are powerless to fight off the lure of being a pretender, at least for long, over the long haul. I'll show you another song from my generation, from Jackson Brown, also called The Pretender. I'll just read this quickly. It says, I'm going to be a happy idiot and struggle for the legal tender, that's money, where the ads take aim and lay their claim to the heart and soul of the spender. And believe in whatever may lie in those things that money can buy where true love could have been a contender. Are you there? Say a prayer for the pretender who started out so young and strong only to surrender. Say a prayer for the pretender. Ultimately, everybody has to surrender to something. Everyone worships at an altar. You can worship at the altar of money, like the pretender in Jackson Brown song. You can worship at the altar of power, like the pretender in the Foo Fighters song. But the answer is not, I will never surrender. It's what, I, what will I surrender to? If you've become a Christian, you have made a choice to surrender to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. If I make a choice to die, I put to death the old man. The old man is sinful. The old man is a pretender. Most Christians take a good stab at putting the old man to death. We're not bad at that part. For many, dealing with sin is a struggle and continues to be with their whole lives. What happens is we try to put to death that old man. We put the sin in the drawer, it's away. But for many of us, the sin's still in the drawer. It never really goes away. We may not indulge in it, we may not practice it, but it's never really gone away. We struggle with it. If you are Christian at this stage, if this is where you are, you have made an excellent declaration. I will die. I die. I will join Jesus in his death on the cross. I will die to self. I will die to self so that I can obey him. But this declaration by itself is not enough. Another declaration is required. Another declaration is required that has infinitely more power than I will die or I die. You can say I will die and that gets you to where we are at this point. But the other declaration that will take you so much further is I will live. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the morning. If I joined Jesus at the cross, 
I join him also in the resurrection. And this is really important. Jesus died, and now he lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the most powerful event in the history of man. Let's take a look at Matthew 27. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. As I talk to people, I don't find many people that are really that familiar with this verse. Well, they're familiar with the first part because everybody knows about the, the veil of the temple being torn in two. And that veil was what separated the holy place, the holy of holies in the temple from the rest of the temple. So that only the, holy pre the, the high priest could enter in to the holy of holies. Well, that veil was torn, and that represents the fact that we can have an entrance into the presence of God because of Jesus. But the second part of this verse just blows me away when I read it. When I first saw this, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't understand it. And I had to sort of seek out people to say, am I reading this right? When Jesus was resurrected, the life-giving power of God that came and raised him from the dead, as you can imagine, it just spilling out everywhere. It was just so powerful. And the people that were dead in the graves came out and they walked into the city, and they made themselves known to the people in the city. Can you imagine they're sitting there for breakfast, and one of your friends who maybe died in an accident said, hey, what's for breakfast? You'd be like, wow. I think the second question you'd ask you is, can I take a shower? But very, very, very powerful statement of what's happened here. The dead, it wasn't just Jesus. I mean, many people came out of the grave. This was life. There was something happening here that represents life in all of its fullness. When we become Christians, we confess our faith in Jesus, and we acknowledge that we believe that he died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. We also commit to making Jesus Lord in our lives. That's the beginning. Usually at some later time, we figure out because we begin to realize that we serve a holy God, we start to see ourselves in the reflection of that holiness, and we start to say, wow, I'm, I'm more sinful than I thought I was. Bad news is that never, process never stops. But when we are baptized, what's symbolized there, the, the, the plunging into the waters is a picture of the death, the death and burial of that we have with Jesus, right? But what I'm focusing on now is the second part of the baptism, which is the emergence from the water, which is representing your participation with Jesus in the resurrection, right? That we are resurrected to life. We are resurrected. So we die, but then we emerge again to live. So two powerful things are represented here. One is, first, that we are freed from the power of sin, right? That's the first thing. We die to sin. We have, we've broken the power of sin over our lives. And the second is that we have the power to live. Sin no longer has a grip on us. Are we still sinners? Yes. Do we need to be ashamed of it? 
No. Are we righteous? In and of ourselves, no. But by the blood of Jesus and by the grace of God, righteousness and holiness are imputed to us because of our faith in him. God wants to redeem us and bring us to a place that we, do, we don't deserve to be. And that place is in his presence. It's a powerful place and a great place to be. The power to live, the power to overcome sin, comes from the same power that took Jesus, that took hold of Jesus to conquer sin and death. It's the same exact power. And this is really important to grab hold of. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we can have in our lives. It gives us life. Just as it gives Jesus life, it gives us life. That life-giving power gives us an ability to do things that we couldn't have otherwise have done. One of them is that we have the power to become like Jesus. And if we look at Ephesians chapter 4, you can see how that is. When we put on the self, we looked at this earlier, we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Wow, I can be like God in righteousness and holiness? That doesn't make sense. But that's what the scripture says. This is how you were created, to be like him in righteousness and holiness. We can have access to an amazing spirit-filled life that Jesus brings to us through this spirit. Let's look at John 10. Most of us are familiar. We know the first part of this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, the thief being Satan. I, Jesus, have come that they might have life, and they might have it to the full. And in the King James Version, it says, I come that they may have life, and they, ha they might have it more abundantly. All right? We also have the power through this amazing life-giving power that we have in Jesus, the Spirit of God that lives within us, to do things that Jesus did. Jesus said that we could do everything that he did and more. And you, know, you think about that and you say, well, you know, Jesus like, did miracles and stuff and he did all kinds of things that were just amazing. Uh, I can't do that stuff. But John 14, 11 and 12 says something different. Jesus says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is me in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And this is an amazing verse because if you can take hold of this verse, if you can actually accept the fact that God wants you to become like Jesus, it's kind of an awakening because then you can say, well, okay, I can do the things that Jesus did. Why? Because of the power of God that's in me, not because of anything that I have. I believe this verse to my core. I'm going to tell you a couple of quick stories. If any of you haven't been witnesses to miracles in your lives and, and what God can do. Uh, the first one was... Uh, Many of you know, Patty and I spent 10 years in Singapore. And uh, one of the ladies that worked for me, she was an administrator. Uh, her name was Avalyn. And she was uh, in her early 40s, never been married, a really nice lady. 
And uh, we had invited her to our house to do some Bible study. And she was so cute. She knew nothing about Christmas. She knew nothing about Jesus. I mean, you talk about someone who never heard anything. And uh, she came over with a friend, and she wanted to learn. <clears throat> and uh, as I was walking her to the bus stop at the end of that night, she asked me this great question. She says, when you pray, you have to tell God where you are. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't have to do that. But why do you ask? He says, well, when I pray to my gods, I have to tell him my address and where I am at that moment so he knows how to take care of things for me. I said, wow, that's interesting. Now, my God knows every hair on your head. And she just blew her away. He knows me? And I said, yeah. So later on, um, she never came back from our Bible study, but it was, it was a really nice time. But she did come to me when she had breast cancer. And she said, um, I've just found out I have breast cancer, and I don't know what to do. Well, the internet was just really starting to take hold then. I said, well, has your family been able to help you? Are your doctors helping you with information? And she said, no. And so I went on the internet, and I just got like all this information for her and gave it to her. And, you know, so she helped her to understand what she was getting ready for. And um, long story short, she had to go and have a full mastectomy on, on one side. And um, so as she was getting ready to go to the hospital, she came to me and said, Paul, could you pray for me when I'm in the hospital? Could you pray for me that things will go well? And I said, you bet. I'll be praying for you hard. And when she came back to the office, I said, you know, well, how did everything go? And she said, well, it was pretty amazing. You know, they did the surgery, and everything went the way it was supposed to go, except um, one amazing thing happened. I said, what was that? And she said, well, the recovery time for this kind of a radical operation is about six months. And uh, I said, oh, okay. And she said, well, you know, they cut muscle. They cut everything to make sure that all the cancer is gone. They just they cut everything away. So it takes six months of therapy and everything to be able to move your arm into even somewhat a semblance of range of motion. She says, but when they took the bandages off me, they, they, they checked to see how far I could move. And she said, I was able to move my arm fully around in every direction and with no pain. I said, wow. And they said, well, we couldn't believe it. The doctors couldn't believe it. Nothing like this had ever happened before. And she said, I know that your God did this for me. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, hopefully I've lost track of you. Know, hopefully other people have come into contact with her, and hopefully our God is her God. I, I don't know. I hope so. But even here, in the midst of Genesis, God is doing amazing things. When I was on the task force, um, as we were getting sort of started with the whole Genesis idea, uh, Mr. John Elwell was showing up to every meeting, hunched over in pain, and we were all really concerned for him. I, I, I know he missed work. It was a terrible time for him. And he came to Hope Morning one day, and I didn't see him at the service until afterwards, and I looked across the room, and I saw him, and just this eagerness in my heart to pray for him came up, and I zoomed, zoomed across the room, and he was there with another brother named Michael Bradford, and I said, hey, John, can we pray for you? And he was like, yeah, sure, and we prayed for him, and a week or two later, um, I asked him how he was doing, and uh, he said, you know, from the moment that you guys prayed for me, the pain started going away, and I started getting better every single day. That By the time a week had gone by, 
that the whole back neck pain thing was gone. And you know, he could point to the very moment, the very day that it started getting better. And so you know, God's power is at work amongst us, and we have to lay a hold of it, and we have to just really live the life that God has for us and the power that he has for us. I encourage you to uh, chat with John and ask him about his experience and, and see, um, you know, get his side of that story. We focus on the gospel about the salvation of our souls. This is good. We focus on the freedom from sin that we can have. But to talk about the gospel without talking about the life-giving power that God has for us to work together, to pray for one another, to heal one another, to encourage one another, is to miss half of the gospel. What we're talking about right now, this life-giving power that God has for us, this I will live, this life that God is, is the essence and the power of the gospel that we preach. Through Jesus, we can know God, we can be freed from sin, and we can walk in the same power and victory that marked the life of Jesus. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what Jesus is saying here, I mean what Paul is saying here, is that we can walk in both the power of God and the wisdom of God because of the spirit that dwells within us. We can be like Jesus. And this truth was kept secret, was kept hidden throughout the ages. And it was kept hidden for a reason. And it was revealed to Paul the why this truth was hidden until after Jesus came and left. Why was this a secret that we could become like Jesus? It's pretty simple, actually. If Satan had known that you, each one of you, could become like Jesus, if each one of you could love and bless and just do the things that Jesus did, Satan never would have crucified Jesus. He wouldn't have done it. He would have cut, cut his losses. You know, one for millions, right? So uh, is that really in the Bible? Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. In the context of the gospel message that not only provides for salvation for sin and for eternal life, but it also provides for the power to live an abundant life. In this context, we have to ask the question again, who am I? We all feel worthy of death. Nobody has a problem here in this room. We all feel worthy of death. We all want victory over sin, to be freed from the pain and the bondage of sin. 
Not all of us feel worthy of walking, though, in the power of the Spirit of God. We can receive the grace of God and forgiveness of sins, but we have a hard time receiving the grace of God in the form of his power in our lives. We just don't think we're worthy of that. How could I imagine that I could walk like Jesus? And we ask the question a different way. Who am I? When you make the declaration, I will live, you're taking the first step to redefining yourself. The question of who am I then becomes in, asked in the context, the backdrop, the truth that Christ lives in you and that your life is now defined in the truth and the reality of God's presence in your life. You can define yourself fully this way because God's presence is in your life every hour of every day. Not three hours or seven or eight hours a year, but every hour of every day. You'll become Christ-like as God's sanctifying power works in your life. To sanctify means to, to make holy or to become like God. As you yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, as you become obedient to his bidding, you will see God's amazing power start to work through you. You will come to know God in deeper ways as he reveals himself to you as you come into his presence more and more often. You will be able to stand up and to declare with boldness, I am a child of God. I am a son of God. In Romans it said, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, such are they that are children of God. That's an identity. I used to get worried about becoming Christ-like. And everybody said, oh, Paul, you know, you're, when you mature, you're going to become just like Jesus. You're going to become Christ-like. And I would read that in the Bible. And I used to get worried about that. Like, okay, so I get it. I die. I grow. I become more like Jesus. I die. I grow. I become more like Jesus. Pretty soon, I'm like a Jesus robot. I'm like, I don't know if I like that. I like being me. I don't like everything about me, but I like me. And then finally I realized, and it was taught to me, that no, there is a me waiting to happen that is the me that God meant me to be. The me that looks something like Jesus, but it's me. You know, it's a Jeremy or a Mike or a DJ that looks like Jesus. And that got me excited. I mean, it's like, I, I still get to be me? That's cool. I don't have to like, everything about me has to die? No, but what ha does happen is all the bad things about me die and all the good things that look like Jesus come into fruition. In becoming like Jesus, you won't lose you. You'll find the real you the purpose that you are meant to have, and the joy that you are meant to have. When do we find our most joy? We find the most joy when we are in the middle of the purpose that we have. So I can have the power to live a life that's marked by power and victory and blessing in God. But I can't do that alone. 
I have been created to live in the context of we. And this is an important piece of the story. As I rise up to walk in this new life, I become a part of something that's larger than just me. I begin to fulfill this role, this purpose that God has for me within the larger body of Christ. Declaring that you will live is just the beginning of a long journey. Grabbing hold of that life-giving power that Jesus has for us allows us to have the strength and wisdom to overcome the sin and other obstacles in our lives, but we can't do this alone. You just can't do it alone. The power of God is amazing, yes, but he meant it to be that we do it together. Can I overcome, in, can I overcome sin in my life with the power of God? Practically speaking, yes. Or I said, uh, you know, sorry, actually speaking, yes. Practically speaking, no. I need you guys. I need every one of you around me to, uh, to make that happen. We have to encourage one another and help each other to grow towards Christ-likeness. And we all have unique parts to play in the body. So as we become Christ-like, we don't all become similar. We're all very different. And we all fulfill our unique purposes and roles that we have. And that's what makes the body so amazing, that each of us has a part to play. And when we don't enter into that life-giving power that God has given us, when we don't enter into the purpose with the full strength and power of God, we're actually failing to fulfill our purpose and role in the body of Christ for one another. Right? Does that make sense? But here's the amazing part. The body of Christ has another purpose, and it's to glorify God. And it's to glorify God not only in the community, but it's to glorify God in the very heavenlies. Let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3. Although I am the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which is for ages past kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mystery that Paul is referring to here is that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles only, that all would be included into this body of Christ, and all would be included in eternal life, and all would be included in the ability to come into the presence of God. And he explains here the purpose of the church is to make known the manifold or unbelievable wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Who's that? Satan and his host. Think about this. We, the church, together, all of us here, in what we do and fulfilling our roles in the power of Jesus, we are an in-your-face to Satan by God. Does that make sense? God's up there going, Satan, look at these guys. In your face. These are my guys. This is for me. <laughs> right? That's what he's doing. That's what we are. We are that. 
And, uh, and God protects us in that because, you know, that really rips Satan, doesn't it? You can imagine, just eats him up. Get those guys. I'm really glad we have prayer warriors around here that keep us, you know, help keep us protected from those guys. It's good. Thank you to all you guys for doing that. Let's look at Ephesians 3 again. Take this a little, one step further. Ephesians 3, 16 and 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, that's the believers, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. One of the powers that we will have together as a body is to be able to grasp how wide and deep and high is the love of God for us and the love of God for the world that's around us. I don't know about you guys. I do know about a lot of you guys. You're like me. I love being a part of the body of Christ. And I love being a part of this body of believers called Genesis. It is in this body that we can confess to one another. We can pray for one another. And as Joe said to me this morning, you don't do good. I'm going to call you out on that this morning. And that's what we do, right? If, if, we, if we don't do well, we call one another out. That's our job in the body. Uh, how am I doing, Joe? Okay. I don't think he liked it. Right? Anyway. <laughs> But that's what we're supposed to do. And you know what we're especially supposed to do? We're supposed to call each other out when we're playing the pretender. Hey, look at you. That's, that's not who you're meant to be. Let's, go into, let's get into the word. Let's pray together. I meet with folks from Genesis pretty regularly for coffee or around here. Um, and one of the guys that I get together with is uh, Mr. Michael Davis, as I'm sure some of you others do. But meeting with Michael challenges me and encourages me. But the interesting thing is that it's a two-way street. Just because he wears, has a title of pastor doesn't mean he's, a regular, he's not a regular guy. And so I get to challenge him and encourage him and, and push him along and encourage him. And uh, I got to tell you, I've known Michael for six years. And we've been through a lot of things together. And we've been through a lot of, I would say, spiritual battles in many respects. And we've been able to encourage one another through that. I can't imagine what it would be like doing those things alone. And so um, God can speak to you directly, and he will. But he also uses those around you to speak to you and encourage you. I also love being part of a life group. Uh, I've been involved with sort of home groups and life group type things for many years. But uh, this, this past fall was great. I, I was part of Mark, Mark Mulvaney's life group. We had a great time ripping apart the word, figuring out how to apply it to our lives. What does it mean? What am I doing? How does, how does what I'm doing sit with what these verses say? I really look forward to doing that every week. So much so that a, uh, a month or two ago, I was away on a business trip. I was away for a couple of days. I was exhausted, and I was flying in late. And I was looking at my watch and said, "Well, 
I could probably get there about 9.30. They're probably just going to wrap up and get into prayer. I said, you know, I just want to be with those guys. And so I drove from the airport straight to Mark's house and had a chance to pray with and be with the guys. And when I got home, it was so cool. I just told my wife, uh, Patty, I said, you know what? I was exhausted. I was tired. But I'm almost surprised. I, I wanted to be there. That's where I wanted to be. And so that's what it's like being part of the body. You want to be a part of it. You want to be in it. And you want to be with the people that, uh, that are having the same purpose as you. So I asked the question for me, myself, Paul, sitting here in front of you now. Who am I now? I've been a Christian for over 20 years. I've defined myself in different ways in the past, looking for acceptance and looking for that uh, pat on the shoulder. But now I think I can honestly say that I define myself in the context of a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ and with God. And I also define myself in the context of re my relationship with the body. Everything that I do is affected by my faith and the life-giving spirit that fills me. I pray for you guys that you will also be able to stand up and say and declare, I will live. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I just thank you for how you have made just abundant provision for us in all that uh, you have done for us. Lord, not only have you made a way for us to be with you forever, not only have you removed the stain of sin uh, from our lives, the past sin as we enter in with you, but Lord, you have provided something for us that is even so much better. Lord, you have allowed us to become partakers of the divine nature with you. Lord, that we can just take hold of the power of your spirit and that we can, guided and directed by you, do amazing things. Lord, I just pray for each person here that they will make the choice to live, to live fully in you, to receive gladly the gifts that you would have for them in this abundant life. Lord, I pray for um, each person, Lord, that you would show them their purpose, that they might step into that purpose with, with a joy that they haven't found before. And Lord, I especially pray for each person that they would find that purpose, find that role, uh, find that unique position in the body of Christ so that we may be edified by that person. Lord, don't leave anyone out. Bring each person here into the fullness of what you would have for them in the goodness and the power of your spirit and by the blood that was spilled by your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.